All right. Uh, welcome to Nice Talk. We are very excited to bring you this first episode of our new monthly talk show where we uh, bring expert commentary from around the world of crypto. Today, we have a very special guest, Tim Bako, uh, joining us from the Ethereum team. Uh, this is a live event, so don't forget to drop questions into the chat, and we look forward to addressing them here towards the conclusion of our event. Uh, so my name is Sean. I am your Nice Talk host. Um, so I want to turn over and introduce uh, Joe Downey, Chief Marketing Officer of NiceHash. Hi, everyone. My name is Joe. I'm Head of Marketing and PR at, uh, here at NiceHash, and it's been involved with crypto for a few years and fascinated by the use cases of blockchain and its technology. I think it's uh, a great thing uh, moving forward. We live in a global economy. Uh, COVID's definitely proved that. And we're all connected, whether we like it or not. Um, but the economic model lacks uh, borderless and fast way to transfer value. And cryptocurrency and blockchain solves that. So I think we're living in very exciting times right now. And yeah, I came up with the idea with, for this show, uh, talk show as a way to connect the world of mining together with the wider crypto community and reach out and share thoughts and ideas. And joining us today is also Marco Tarman from our mining team. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm nice hash uh, hardware manager, also involved with uh, product management and uh, design content creation. I started mining back in 2012. I was mining Bitcoin, Litecoin, Earthcoin, Dogecoin, uh, Ethereum, and obviously right now I'm mining with NiceHash. Um, I think crypto is still in its early stage. Uh, it will evolve over time, just like, for example, airplanes did. Uh, when first they only flew for like a bunch of maybe 10 meters and look at the industry right now. So yeah, now I want to turn it out to Tim from Ethereum Foundation. Hi everyone. Uh, my name is Tim. I work with the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, there I run what's called the Alcor Devs calls, which are the calls where different developers working on the Ethereum protocol get together to propose and implement changes to Ethereum. Um, I've been doing that uh, since the beginning of this year, replacing Hudson Jameson, uh, which a lot of people are familiar with. And prior to that, I spent a few years working on an actual client implementation. So I was part of Consensus's protocol team, uh, where we developed the Ethereum client called Hyperledger Basu. Awesome, Tim. Thanks for uh, joining us here today. So uh, can you give us a little bit about what is uh, Ethereum... Uh, and 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 kind of what is the London fork that actually just took place um, and just kind of give like a 30,000 foot view of uh, what that is for the audience. Sure. Um, so Ethereum has uh, basically network upgrades. Um, contrary to like different uh, coins, uh, we do hard forks kind of by design. Um, so when you hear say hard forks on, on Bitcoin or on, on Monero or stuff, they're usually very contentious. And it means that, you know, parts of the community are uh, disagreeing with each other pretty strongly. And, um, and, and and they go off their separate way and they create a fork. So when you've had, say, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, you know, people disagreed about the block size and then people wanted a big block size just forked away from Bitcoin Cash. Um, and the reason they have to do that is because to introduce new features into blockchains, you basically need to have all the nodes on the network agree to those new features at the same time. And that's what's called a hard fork. Um, but on Ethereum, we've always had this... Um, 
this this philosophy of wanting to add a lot of features to the protocol. Um, so we, we, we have frequent hard forks and we've started calling them network upgrades because most of the time they're not really contentious, right? They're just, you know, adding new features to the protocol. Um, and so in August, we had another one of these uh, called London. Uh, we've been using DevCon city names uh, to, to name them. So that's why it's called London. And um, it introduced a lot of significant changes to Ethereum. It's probably the most significant uh, upgrade we've had since uh, the start of Ethereum. Um, the biggest of which is EIP-1559. And this is probably something that uh, people on the mining side are, are quite familiar with because it changed how, uh, how, how uh, transaction fees were, were working on Ethereum. Um, but the upgrade also brought in a, a lot of other changes, um, like changing how basically gas costs for smart contracts work so that they're a bit more uh, healthy with regards to how much time uh, different operations take to execute on Ethereum. Um, and also laid kind of some groundwork for some future, future improvements uh, in the EVM itself. The EVM is the virtual machine on Ethereum. Um, which actually runs all the applications on Ethereum. Um, so yeah, it was it was a pretty a pretty big upgrade uh, because it, it changed a lot of parts of the system. Um, it's went it's it's went really really well. So we've seen you know everybody upgrade. It's actually the first upgrade that I've been part of where nobody was stuck mining on the old chain, where you know no miners kind of forgot to upgrade their nodes. Um, and yeah, we've seen like really good adoption of the different features that uh, were um yeah that that's were proposed in, in in the upgrade awesome well so i wanted to bring in everybody here so now we're going to move into more of kind of like a roundtable discussion on a bunch of different topics surrounding the ethereum roadmap proof of stake staking challenges mining all that type of stuff so uh one of the main things is remember that our core audience here is nice hash miners um, so obviously the move to proof of stake uh they probably are concerned about that um so yeah. uh what can you tell us about the move to proof to, uh, to proof of stake? Sure. Um, so obviously, you know, from the very beginning, Ethereum has wanted to move to proof of stake eventually. Um, it has this thing in the network called the difficulty bomb, which miners might be familiar with, uh, which basically freezes mining uh, on on Ethereum. And we've had to push this back a couple of times in the past because proof of stake was basically not ready. But you know, since 2015, people on Ethereum have been researching how can we actually get this to proof of stake. And proof of work was only ever meant as kind of a, a transition uh, for for transition period for Ethereum before it moved to proof of stake. Um, so with regards to the upgrade itself, uh, now that the London upgrade is out and it's running on mainnet, uh, proof of stake is really the main priority of all of the developers and researchers working on Ethereum. Um, we, don't, we, we don't have... Uh, we don't have like an exact date uh, for the transition yet because uh, we're still kind of at the early days of of uh, of, of doing the work. Um, but if I had to guess, I expect that around Q1 of next year, um, we'll probably be transitioning to proof of stake. So in practice, what this means for miners is that at that point, it'll be impossible to main on the Ethereum mainnet. There's not going to be kind of a proof of work chain left behind. Um, Obviously, you know, there are other proof of work chains uh, and, and a lot of them support the same hardware as Ethereum. Uh, Ethereum Classic is one. I think Ravencoin is another is another one. Um, but one thing that I would tell, you know, miners and especially potential miners is if they are thinking about investing significantly to mine Ethereum right now, they should really kind of aim to break even at least by kind of the end of the year. 
because you know there is a, a chance we're say that proof of stake launched early Q1 of next year. Uh, you know, if you haven't broken even on, on, on your GPU investment or something like that, um, you, you might just yeah be in a bad spot because mining will be turned off. Uh, so that's really something that miners should be aware. Uh, once we have a public checklist of like all the things we need to get done for the transition to proof of stake. Uh, so if you go on GitHub uh, in the Ethereum organization, so GitHub slash Ethereum, there's a project management repository, which is just called PM. So GitHub slash Ethereum slash PM. And in there you can find, I think it's called merge readiness checklist or something like that. Um, and that basically lists all of the kind of, you know, things from the engineering side we need to do before the merge. And so if people want to track the progress, that's really like the, the number one resource I would, I would you know, point them to. Um, and obviously there will be plenty of announcements as we're, as we're ready, um, but those will probably be kind of a, a sort of final warning, right? So uh, you, you don't want people to get caught off by surprise there. Yeah. Um, just a question. You mentioned difficulty bump. Can you tell us more about it? I, I think I read something about it, but it will be imp implemented by end of the year. Like, is, sure. Yeah, what yeah, was that I, all about? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So what the difficulty bomb is, is it's, uh, to, to put it in, in, in mining terms, it's yeah. an overhead that the network adds to the hash rate difficulty. So you can think about it almost as like fake miners on the network, right? Um, okay. and, and, you know, basically mining is a function of like your hash rate relative to everybody else's hash rate. Uh, so yeah. if, if there is more hash rate, you're, you proportionally have, have uh, much less. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so uh, the, the difficulty bomb is, is like a very a steep exponential curve. So for like a year, it's basically flat. So it adds no extra difficulty. And then at some point the bomb goes off uh, where, you know, it, it starts adding dif difficulty at an exponential rate to the network. And that means that, um, you know, very quickly within a few months of going off, it would add more difficulty to the uh, chain than the sum of all the current hash rates. So that means it would basically slowly make it impossible to mine on Ethereum. Um, so this okay. has been in the protocol um, since 2016 or 15, uh, not exactly sure. Um, and in the past, every time that it started to go off, uh, so that we've and, and we've seen that if you look at a historical block time chart, you can see sometimes in Ethereum's history blocks go from 13 to 14 to 15 seconds and whatnot. That means the bomb is going off. And so what we do then is we can push back the bomb. So we say, well, instead of going off at you know block say 1 million, we're going to say, well, we're going to add an extra delay. We're going to add another million block delay, and then the bomb will go off at block 2 million. Okay, so what, what's, what's the point of the bomb? Like, why would you want to have this? Yes. Doesn't doesn't uh, like make it dangerous for centralization? Because like the people with low uh, cost will be able to mine. Sure, them. yeah, yeah. So the point of the bomb is really to force us to upgrade, right? So. Okay. It, it makes it impossible to stay on the old chain. And I, I think this brings us two things. Like one, it forces us to have regular upgrades on the network, right? And eventually to move to proof of stake. Um, but the other thing too, is that it, it kind of acts as a way to protect people against scams, where if you do want to um, fork Ethereum, you would need to at least kind of remove the difficulty bomb or update it and then get people to download that software, right? So it's not like in, say when there's a hard fork in Bitcoin, um, 
you can choose to just do nothing and stay on the on the normal chain, right? And okay. and you know, on the, on you, you the old chain. Yeah, exactly. But uh -huh. with the difficulty bomb, you cannot do that, right? It's like when the bomb goes off, you you need to choose to upgrade. And if people want, you know, if the hard fork is contentious, it's fine, right? Like you can have two sides to the upgrade. It's only happened once in Ethereum's history with Ethereum Classic, um, but it puts like a minimum amount of work that both sides need to do to support Ethereum. And I think in the space where like we've seen a lot of scams and people try to like, you know, fork Bitcoin 10,000 times on Bitcoin Silver, Bitcoin Diamond, Bitcoin Ultra and all that, um, it makes that a bit harder to do for Ethereum. Um, and, and, and I think that's kind of valuable to protect new users coming into space. So one of the questions I wanted to actually, we kind of moved into another topic where we we're going to talk about staking challenges. So obviously yes. with, with proof of stake, the, the, one of the concerns that I have as a, as someone who's done mining, who's been involved with proof of work, really all of my time that I've been involved with crypto is for me, I feel that proof of stake will limit the barrier to entry. So right now it seems that um, the staking amount to participate in the consensus mechanism on Ethereum is 32 ETH. That's about 80,000 euros. Yep. Um, so does this only really, I mean, because so if I only have $5,000, I can't necessarily even participate in the consensus mechanism. So does that consolidate who can actually participate? Right, right. That's a really good question. Um, so it's worth noting, you know, Ethereum has always wanted to have kind of the most decentralized proof of stake. Um, but there's a few ways you can think about that. Um, a lot of a lot of different, like you know, other proof of stake chains, they use delegation, where you know it costs millions of dollars usually to actually run a validator node, but then people can delegate, you know, say your five thousand dollars to them, um, and that really puts the power in the hand of those delegators because you, as the person with the five thousand dollars, you know, you can't really do much if your validator kind of goes rogue. Um, and, and Ethereum really wanted to avoid that. Um, and so it, it, it wanted to develop a system where you could handle, you know, not tens or hundreds of validators, but hundreds of thousands. Um, and so this is why kind of proof of stake took so long. You know, people sometimes complain that we said it was going to be ready in 2017 and it only launched in 2020. Um, and, and the reason was we really wanted to make sure that we could have as, as low of a barrier to entry for a single validator as possible. Um, and, and that number was originally 1,500 ETH, which uh, was, was with today's prices is extremely high. When it was designed, it, it didn't seem so bad. And then, you know, they lowered it down to 32. Um, and so, yes, this is a high number, um, but you kind of have to compare that not against, you know, the minimum required to stake on another network, but basically how much would it take you to run like a validator or a master node or something like that on another network? And those are kind of equivalent on Ethereum. Well, when you think about it, yeah. 32 Ethereum, you know, that's that's a lot nowadays, but let's stretch yeah. that out over time. So yes, uh, you that's know, a really 1500 good Ethereum uh, when it, the price was much lower, but imagine we continue- In five years, right? Yeah. If it's like- yeah, so you're right. you're you know the cost of a GPU might you know to 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 get yeah. a you know a thirty ninety. Let's use the highest end graphics card. You're talking twenty five hundred yeah. bucks yeah. with that one graphics card. While I might not be able to mine a ton of Ethereum, I can at least contribute to the consensus yeah. mechanism and being able to download a core wallet or something like that. You know, there's no cost associated with that. So then you yeah. can act as a as an actual node there. Um, so yeah. it's it's a vast 
different. Yeah, um, right, right. And how do we bridge that gap, right? Uh, yeah. So I 100% agree with you. Uh, so first of all, you know, your question about like five years from now, I think we need to keep working on lowering that number, right? Because it's like a it's like a, a battle against price levels in a way, right? Like because maybe in five years, sixteen ETH will be you know even more than thirty two ETH is right now, and and so you know we definitely want to keep lowering that minimum number. Um, and and the biggest bottleneck there is just uh, is is just as you add more validators, you add more networking overhead. And the bandwidth that the network consumes becomes unsustainable. But that's not that's an engineering problem, right? It's not like you know a, a, a theoretical physics problem. So we, we can solve that. Um, but with regard to you know your, your first point, like you know if I only have two thousand dollars, how how the hell am I going to stake? Um, I think there's a couple options we're seeing being developed for that. The first is we're seeing kind of staking pools with various levels of decentralization happen on Ethereum. Um, so one of the I think the most popular one is called Lido. And there you can stake any amount of ETH and you get back kind of a staking token. So a staked ETH token. Um, and what they do behind the scenes is they'll just, you know, use smart contracts to aggregate, you know, your $2,000 and my $2,000 and, you know, other person's uh, $10,000 into like validators and distribute that to node operators. Um, so it's not perfectly decentralized because, you know, you have like this, this kind of set of, of, operators that the that are that are being chosen and whatnot but it is like a good step in that direction the other thing that we're working on uh this is a bit more on the theoretical side but is research into cryptography that allows people to split validator keys trustlessly and to do something where say you have two thousand dollars and you have you know say 20 of your friends and you all get together to to start a validator there's ways where you can cryptographically kind of you know each own that validator and, and set it up where you each have a fraction of the deposit. So that's like a big active area of research that, uh, you know, where the Ethereum Foundation and, and others are like heavily investing in, um, where if if we can kind of abstract that 32 number, like that 32 number is really important at the protocol level, but the way we kind of map that to different user keys and wallets um, potentially has some flexibility. And that's something that we're we're really looking into. Um, but today, yeah, I think your best option would be to go with uh, with a token, uh, you know, like staked ETH. Um, there are also several exchanges that offer staking, um, but then you know you're basically leaving your coins on those exchange uh, and and trusting them to, to stake for you, um, and you know you you may or may not feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, I think uh, proof of stake is very interesting. It's uh... Something, you know, a lot of people talking about the difference, proof of work, proof of stake. Um, but I think we've still got a long way to go in terms of the actual technology. From uh, from my perspective, I see the proof of stake being a little too close to the current financial model, which is what most cryptocurrencies were aimed to kind of solve uh, these issues. And uh, over time, it's kind of inevitable that the wealth would literally be concentrated into, say, wealthier countries or places like this. As it grows over time, we're talking like five, 10 years, with the current proof of stake format, uh, like you're saying, it's inevitable this will, will end up in the hands of the wealthy and be harder for, for the everyday people to to come into. And you could look at the, the staking like a savings account. You, know, you put yeah. put your money there and then you get back some interest. It's very similar to this. Right, right. And I think this is why, um, so I, I kind of disagree with you. And the reason is because we are starting to see these stake tokens, right? So if I, I agree that if you want to like lock up capital, you know, 
for a long period of time, you need to be able to have that capital, kind of like mining, right? You know, you can't mine if like you don't have a couple thousand dollars to buy a, a GPU card or, you know, an ASIC on, depending on, on, on the network. Um, and obviously, yeah, if you need to lock up $80,000, you need $80,000 that like you, you, you don't need immediate access to. Um, but with staking tokens, like, uh, like staked ETH, you will start to see people, you know, be able to use that as ether, you know, and if they want to just, you know, own one ETH, put it in staked ETH, they'll earn interest on it. And then, you know, they can use that in DeFi, they can use that in, you know, whatever applications they currently use on Ethereum, they can, you know, pay people with that. Um, and so I think we are able to do things on Ethereum specifically, which keep it accessible and decentralized. Um, but it's, it has to be like a very, uh, like, it has to be a big focus of ours. Um, and so, um, and so, you know, that's definitely something we want to keep pushing forward. Okay. Also, any other questions with regards to staking challenges or anything like that from the NiceHash team? Uh, I think that uh, proof of stake will be the future. Like the environment issue is like a big issue to handle and proof of stake solves it. But, but as a miner, I think that uh, Proof of work will hurt many people, like, you know, uh, a lot of people invested and people will lose money. You talking about with regards to paying for power and then of the, yeah, and the uh, one thing I do yeah. like at least about at least GPU mining. So ASICs, if an algorithm changes, it becomes basically the world's most expensive paperweight. Whereas with a GPU, yeah. at least there's alternative things that you can do with it. You can still do gaming. You can still do productivity and you can resell it on the, on the market. So at least if you're dedicated to, G, uh, to GPU mining, um, or at least making that competitive with something like FPGAs or something like that, then you, there's alternatives. So you're not dealing with e-waste, uh, but there is the power consumption mechanism. Uh, and I think the proof of stake, while I don't necessarily agree with it from a philosophical perspective, the one benefit to that is the power consumption, you know, that does go down. So being able to figure out some type of a way in order to uh, lower the threshold. So anybody, and I think using GPUs as kind of your metric of the cost to the barrier of entry is a great, because normally they're anywhere between 300 to $3,000, depending on the power in which you want to influence on the network. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, that would be a great place to, to kind of get inspiration as to what that proof of stake requirement would be. Yeah. But, and to, to be honest, uh, the proof of work can be quite uh, centralized. I mean, if you just look at the top five pools, yep. uh, if like maybe yep. three of them go together, they can just control the whole network. And that's, a, that's another issue with the pool thing that you were talking about with regard to staking. I mean, both proof of work and proof of stake have that same thing where if pool operators want to act in a, in a nefarious way, then you know you could easily have a 51% attack or something like that on the network and shift the, uh, the consensus mechanisms uh, using just pool operators. So far, uh, we seem to be uh, doing pretty well in avoiding that. Um, but I wanted to transition over, uh, Joe, did you want to talk about, um, what type of options and things like that nice hash is exploring in order to support Ethereum once they move to proof of stake? Yeah, exactly. I mean, nice hash, we're, we're always looking for, for products and we very much support uh, Ethereum, whichever direction it takes, you know, mining or, or staking. And I think it's important that, that we, we think about the, the bigger picture that for, 
for cryptocurrency to, to come to mass adoption, any blockchain that is successful is good for, for everyone else. This is a really key thing to, to be aware of. So a nice idea, we, our core goal is to make sure that you know, cryptocurrency is easy and accessible to, to everyone, to as many people as possible. And whether, you know, through mining and staking, this is some fantastic ways to, to continue to do this. Awesome. So speaking of mining, let's go ahead and, and steer that topic over into mining. So um, I, I would I would ask Tim, what happens to miners that don't support the new chain? Will it fork again? We kind of touched on that a little bit earlier as far yeah. as uh, the, the amount of work required to be able to split that. But what advice would you give to miners and, and how can they essentially the investment they've made in hardware? How can they still try to uh, earn something from that, or, or what can Ethereum offer in in guidance as to as they move sure. to Ethereum two point Right, right. So the first thing, like I said at the beginning, is um, like it's it's really important to try and aim to uh, to be profitable by say the end of this year, early next year. So if you are you know thinking about making new investments in the mining hardware and whatnot, like definitely think very. Uh, you know, carefully about that. Um, I think the other thing too is like, yes, starting to see what other chains uh, you can migrate to after that. Um, and, you know, I, I'm i not like a mining expert, but off the top of my head, I know Ethereum Classic and, and Ravencoin are, are the two kind of big ones right now. Um, you know, if miners did want to support a proof of work fork of Ethereum, um, it's definitely technically possible to do. And then the challenge is, you know, how do you get people to use that that fork? Um, I'm a little bit less convinced about that just because Ethereum Classic exists today, right? Like, so, um, you know, why would you go and, and kind of fork Ethereum right now and kind of, you know, have to maintain a separate code base and a separate network um, when I think it would probably be easier to just kind of get people onto etc which which you know is live and running and proof of work and i don't think as, as last time i checked has any plans to move away from proof of work um yeah so that would be my, my general advice like uh, but yeah i i do think there is like a pretty big gap between the mining community and the developer community sometimes um and and i just hope you know part of the reason why i'm on this podcast is hopefully that you know more people are aware that this is happening I know in the past, you know, Ethereum has said it's going to move to proof of stake like a hundred times, and we've always missed the deadlines. Um, but I, you know, I'd say there's like an eighty percent chance that it happens in Q1 next year, and 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 you should be ready for that, right? And say it happens, you know, late Q1 or Q2, then like sure, you you know, you've made an extra couple months of income, and, and that's good for miners. But you don't want to be in a spot where like, you know. I say Q1, you think it's going to happen in Q3, and then we actually shut mining down in you know February, and 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 like you've invested all this money in GPU. So that's really, um, yeah, th that's really the one thing I would just like to stress, like making sure that you know you, you think through the the profitability assumptions of, of investing in new hardware right now. One of, yeah, one of the great uh, things about uh, GPU mining is the fact that you can easily switch uh, algorithms. So for of course when you're using an ASIC, you're you're pretty much uh, screwed <laughs> if you if something goes wrong but with the gpu the great thing is that you can switch to other algorithms and i think we're going to actually see a very interesting time here nicehash from from the point where ethereum goes to just proof of stake simply because we have a lot of different algorithms um, available to mine onto and to be quite a minimal changeover from for most people to, to then go and mine uh, another algorithm say uh, ravencoin or or ergo for example and 
And this is something that I think will also um, push some kind of change as well. Because when we, we we tend to typically see with coins, the more hash rates going on to a coin, the higher the price tends to go in, in general, not always, of course. So I think when a lot of people start to make the change over to other algorithms, we're going to see a lot of movement in, in some other coins and some other um, blockchains in this perspective. So I think it's actually going to actually open up a lot of uh, new possibilities. And uh, we'll yeah. see a lot of more development because, you know, kind of um, domino effect, it will get yeah. more interest and then you get more price and you get more development. And then I think we're going to see some really interesting movements uh, happening. Yeah, since um, I've been in mining space for almost 10 years now, and I've witnessed this like many times. I started mining Bitcoin with my GPU and the difficulty skyrocketed and Litecoin came and then another coin came and so on. So there will always be a coin that will have like the miners uh, interest, like Joe said. So just to call miners, our users, uh, I bet that there might come like a time, maybe a month or two, where mining won't be profitable, but maybe in half a year or maybe in a year, there will be another like great project, great coin that will uh, provoke the mining again. I think that's like, that's guaranteed. So Tim, one question I would have for you. So do you think Ethereum, when it goes proof of stake, it's going to become the top coin and kind of overtake Bitcoin as, as, the, as that covenant number one spot on, on the market cap list? It's really hard to comment on market cap and price. So I, yeah, I'd rather avoid that. I, you know, I think Ethereum already kind of surpasses Bitcoin in a lot of metrics, whether you look at number of transactions, the value settled, the number of addresses. And, you know, I think that's really, um, yeah, that, that's really kind of the, the metrics I look at, like how many people are using Ethereum and how's that growing over time. Um, so many things influence price and yeah, it's really hard to make predictions there. Um, kind of touching back on proof of stake, but I just thought about this question in, in my head. With with proof of work, you have a certain amount of time between blocks. So that's kind of built into the blockchain technology. Does proof yeah. of stake allow you to speed up transactions so you can start to get to where like Visa and MasterCard and the number of transactions that they're doing on a per second basis? Right, right. Uh, so proof of, yeah, proof of work and proof of stake are a bit different in that proof of work targets a block time, but it's like an average, right? Like, so sometimes say on Ethereum, a block yeah. takes seven seconds, sometimes it takes 20, but on average, it's like roughly 13. Um, on proof of stake, the block time is fixed. So on Ethereum, it's fixed at 12 seconds. Um, and the reason we choose that is, it's basically a trade-off between block time and decentralization. The quicker your blocks are together, um, the more powerful your your nodes on the network need to be in order to keep up. Um, so if you have very quick block times, uh, you end up to a spot where it's very, very hard for people to run a node um, because we didn't want to make it harder on Ethereum to run a node for, for people. We, we just went, um, we, we just kept a very similar block time and 12 seconds is just easier to split up than 13, uh, right? Because it's, it's an even number. Uh, so it's, it's like a minor difference, but you don't get any scaling benefits from just proof of stake per se, right? Like any scaling that you would introduce comes at the cost of decentralization like it would on proof of work. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you uh, consider, what would be a tool or mechanism that would actually make proof of work work? You know, I know how proof of stake is kind of trying to solve for some of the, the problems with proof of work, but like, let's say we had a perfect world and you had 
full uh, ability to really solve that proof of work uh, mechanism, what would you do in order to change that to make it so that you could still mine, but then you get all the benefits of proof of stake? So I think there, there are two fundamentally different systems. Um, and the biggest value that I see in proof of work is, uh, you know, what people call kind of unforgettable costliness that you can just look at the chain offline, not connected to the internet from Genesis. And you can basically know which one is the, the canonical chain on proof of stake. You can't do that, right? Because when you look at a chain, you also need to look at, um, at who, uh, who the validators are and, you know, what chain that they vote on and whatnot. So you need, you need more information than just like the block hash and the total difficulty. Whereas on proof of work, you basically just need that. Uh, so my, uh, my general view on proof of work is it probably makes sense for the world to have proof of work for either very, very big coins or small ones. Um, proof of work is also nice because it's simple, right? Like it's really easy to implement proof of work and to spin it up. So if, if you are building like a tiny coin, right, it's, it's like super easy to start it on proof of work. Um, I think proof of work is really bad for everything in the middle um, because it takes up a lot of environmental resources and those coins aren't really safe because as long as you're not like the biggest hardware, you know, in your category, you can be 51% attacked by a small subset of the hardware in another one, right? Like Bitcoin, uh, it only takes a small fraction of the Bitcoin hardware to attack Bitcoin Cash, right? So Bitcoin Cash will never be like an actual safe chain because you always have like this pending threat that, you know, somebody could attack it. Ethereum is lucky that like it is the biggest GPU coin, um, but GPUs are, you know, what's good and bad about them is that, you know, you can use them for other things. So there is like a big, you know, non-mining supply of GPUs in the world, um, which is again, kind of a, a threat to Ethereum in a way, like what if those GPUs decided to like, you know, turn against us. Um, so my general view is, yeah, like I think, I, I think Bitcoin should probably always stay proof of work. I think there's like a ton of value in having, you know, the biggest chain be proof of work. And even if Ethereum, you know, becomes bigger than, than, than Bitcoin, um, you know, Bitcoin will still be the dominant proof of work chain. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a ton of value there. I think, you know, very small projects that are just starting off, uh, proof of work makes sense. Personally, if I had a magic wand, everything in the middle should probably move to proof of stake. Um, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so I did want to go ahead and move into Q&A a little bit early, but I did want to give Joe and Marco just a quick chance. Did you have any other questions with pertaining to mining or anything like that that you wanted to touch on real quick? Yeah, I would just like to say I think it's uh, it's great and very interesting to see that Ethereum has had this had, had this goal and uh, it'll be the first uh, one to make the full switch over. So yeah, we wish you a lot of uh, luck and a lot of respect for that. I think it's going to be very interesting uh, for you guys and for everyone else as well. Definitely. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, so let's go right into questions. So we are getting these questions live from the feed. So uh, please submit those questions. I am looking through the YouTube feed over here on my other monitor real quick, just to try and get some of these questions out. Um, so one of the questions that we had was, how do developers view the problem of abandoning the mining community, the workers, with ETH 2.0 and also with the London Fork reducing the payment to the working community? Sure. So I think we, we covered that a bit throughout, but, you know, Ethereum's always wanted to move to proof of stake. Um, so I, I, my hope is it doesn't come as a surprise, you know, like I think it's something we've, we've talked about for years and, and people almost make fun of Ethereum because we keep saying that we will move to proof of stake and, 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 and we haven't. Um, 
so you know it's it's just always been part of like kind of the social contract in ethereum and and like we also touched on there is this difficulty bomb um i think for you know for eip 1559 obviously you know it it um it it reduces minor revenue um but i think it fixes a lot of issues that we had in the previous fee market um where you know people didn't necessarily have to use ether to actually pay for transaction fees um, which is kind of a big economic flaw in the system. Like if Ethereum is the thing that's supposed to run smart contracts, but you don't actually need to use it. And that's really bad. Um, where we didn't have kind of a, a fixed price in the, the network to tell you, you know, how much you should pay. So I, I think, you know, it definitely came at a cost to miners to have EIP 1559, but it benefited kind of all of the network. And I think, you know, miners succeed in a world where like ethereum also succeeds because if nobody uses ethereum because you know it's not evolving and it's not like the most cutting edge platform then basically all of the fees go away and the block reward becomes worthless so i think you know it's yeah like it, it's a trade-off and and i think we made the right one with the ip 1559 it's also worth noting like um i think right now the amount of fees burns on average is roughly 30 percent um and um you know other things can affect minor income by 30%, right? Like the price going up or down by 30% is not unheard of on Ethereum, uh, you know, sometimes in a day. Uh, and hash rate going up or down 30% is also not unheard of, right? Like we've seen months where the hash rate has climbed that much. So I think, you know, as a miner, you should you should expect this space to be very volatile and, and kind of think through, you know, at what points are you profitable and not? And if, again, if you're only very profitable or profitable in like the best of circumstances, you know, things will change. Like there will be bear markets. There will be times when a ton of hash rates comes online. And, and you know, as a miner, you should try to to, to be aware of that and, and, you know, be able to operate under those, those circumstances. Okay. And so with the move to proof of stake, do you think people will start losing interest in Ethereum over time? Mining usually is a great way to incentivize new users to learn about the crypto. Could this hurt adoption? So I don't think so. I think we've we've seen a ton of users come into Ethereum. Like I do I do think that mining is like a if you think about different funnels to get users, miners is definitely like a big one, but it's not the only one. And we've also seen a big community form around stakers uh, too. So, you know, I I think we'll definitely lose a, a, a part of the community when we move to, to proof of stake. Uh, but there are other funnels and other ways that people come and learn about Ethereum. And, you know, and, and there are a lot of resources to help miners become stakers. So if that's something that people are interested in, uh, each staker is kind of an online community that does a great job at that, like onboarding, you know, individuals and hobbyists who wants to stake. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so I, education yeah. in the proof of stake area would probably be the best thing because you have you're dealing with a decade plus of proof of work education that's out there. You have all of these independent creators and stuff like that that are kind of teaching people what mining is. So with proof of stake and you guys really kind of taking that on head force, I think really being able to address adoption would be education and getting people aware as to exactly all the mechanisms because you're dealing with like a decade worth of education on the other right. mechanism yeah, yeah. I, I agree i think that people are not aware that proof of stake solves many problems uh compared to proof of work. yeah so i think I yeah mean, the two yeah the two resources i would point people listening there are uh ethereum.org's website like there's a ton of stuff uh there's, there's a ton of stuff uh, there and then the eat staker community. 
Okay, awesome. Um, so are the developers satisfied with the changes in the gas prices with the hard London fork? Yeah, I, I think so. Like, I think we've seen, basically what we've seen in the London fork uh, is gas prices, you know, gas prices were never meant to be, you know, lowered by the fork. What we wanted is for them to be more predictable, right? Like we want people to know right now, this is the price you should pay. And if the gas price is too high, you know, it's fine for you to wait, but at least, you know, you know, it, it's kind of in, in surge pricing right now. And we've seen that a lot where there's been tons of like NFT sales since the London fork. And what used to happen like in 2017, when we had ICOs that were kind of similar is people would submit a ton of transactions to get into ICOs, gas prices would go crazy, but then there wasn't like a signal for people to know, okay, we can start like lowering our prices again, right? Like the, the rush is over. And so what would happen is like gas prices would go up and then they'd kind of stay up and like very slowly come down. Um, which, which was over. a very good thing for miners, to be honest. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, but then for all the users, you know, this was, this was pretty terrible. Um, and what we've seen now with EIP 1559 is the gas prices will also go up a ton when there's when there's like a, a reason to like an NFT drop or something, but then they'll also go back very quickly down um, because the, the system basically tells users, you know, now nobody is willing to pay high gas prices. So let's start lowering the price again. And we've seen cases where like um, there's been, you know, a massive NFT sale and within like a hundred blocks, we went from like 40 guay to 2000 guay back to 40 guay. And that's like really, really efficient. It means like, you know, we got all those like people who wanted to pay a ton of money. They did their NFT sale, you know, they raised the gas prices for like half an hour, but then after that, it was like back to normal for everybody else. So I've, I've been really impressed that it's, it's, it's actually worked that smoothly. Okay, awesome. Uh, so I got one more question. So what we're going to do, because uh, I do want to be mindful of everybody's time, we are going to keep the show to about 45 minutes. Um, so the last question here is Bitcoin is usually seen as a store of value. What role do you think Ethereum will play after going proof of stake? And will we finally see people using crypto to buy groceries with cheap and fast transactions? So really two questions in one, but yeah. Sorry, what was the first question? So the first question was, uh, or is Bitcoin is usually seen as a store of value. What do you, uh, what is the role of Ethereum when it goes into proof of stake? Do you see Ethereum kind of moving into that uh, store of value role, or is it right, still right. remain what it is now? So, so I think we've seen Ethereum already move as this sort of store of value, right? Because you know, in again in twenty seventeen, you saw all the ICOs hold. Uh, hold Ethereum, you know, as, as their treasury asset. Um, and today, I think we, we mostly see it used as collateral, right? Like people will use Ethereum, but then maybe they'll use actually stable coins to transact, right, and, and pay for, for things. So I, I think it's, it's already on its way to being a store of value. Um, and what's nice with Ethereum is you can use that store of value to get collateral on the network, you know, basically, um, basically you can, uh, you know, put in ether as, as a collateral and get DAI or another stable coin. And that means that like, you don't have to worry about like, say spending your ether if you think, you know, long-term it's, it's, it's gonna go up. So I think, you know, it's nice that we have both and that's one thing that Bitcoin lacks, right? There's no way on the Bitcoin network to say, well, you know, I just wanna spend a hundred bucks, but I'd like to keep exposure to all of my Bitcoin. You kind of need to sell Bitcoin to spend a hundred bucks. Um, and on Ethereum that's not needed. So I think that's like a really good place to be in where it is kind of, Ether as a store of value, then we can have a lot of stable coins that act as, as medium of exchanges. Yeah. 
Okay, awesome. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us here today uh, on this first episode of Nice Hash Talk. So I want to thank Joe, Marco, and Tim. You guys, it's been great talking with you. Um, any closing words or anything like that, Tim, before we transition out? No, thank you for having me. And yeah, I guess if anyone has questions about, you know, mining or the transition to proof of stake or stuff that's listening, uh, I'm on Twitter at Tim Bako, first and last name altogether. Uh, my DMs are open, so please reach out. Uh, if if you're a miner, you know, wondering how you can get into staking or something like that, um, I'm happy to send you links. And then the two things that people should really look at are the Eat Staker community and uh, the ethereum.org website has a ton of, of information about uh, getting into staking. Okay, awesome. So um, wanted to let everybody know that uh, that's all the time we have today, folks, for uh, our first show. So um, we wanted to let you know about Ethereum and its future and uh, continuing the debate over proof of work and proof of stake. Make sure you tune in and join us again next month on the 24th of September. So we will be doing that at 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, where we'll be discussing Ravencoin with its lead developer, Tron Black. Uh, so it's a very uh, interesting project uh, that we're following closely. Um, so we'll make sure to leave your comment on today's show. We'd love to hear your feedback, um, as this was our first talk show uh, from NiceHash. Uh, so thank you for joining us today, and we will see you guys in the next one.